Chapter 21, Sections 1-2 to of J. B. Bury's The Students' Roman Empire, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mark Penfold. The Students' Roman Empire, Part 2, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter 21, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian. Sections 1-2. to two. Section 1. Vespasian. The new ruler of the Roman world, Titus Flavius Vespasianus, has the distinction of having founded a new dynasty. Indeed, he might claim to be considered a second Augustus, somewhat as Augustus claimed to be a second Romulus. He was called upon to perform a task of the same kind as that which Augustus wrought, though on a far smaller scale. The conqueror of Vitellius, like the conqueror of Antonius, had to pacify the state and restore order after civil wars. The wars which followed the death of Nero were not as great in importance or duration as those which followed the death of Julius, but they were serious enough to put the state out of joint, and Vespasian has the glory of having set it right so effectively that the machine went smoothly for another century, during which the empire enjoyed peace and plenty. Vespasian was not a man of originality, he had not a spark of genius, but then no new ideas were required for his work. He merely confirmed the Augustan system and rectified it in some details. He was fully equal to the task which fell to his lot. It required strength of character, and he was strong. It required the plainest common sense, and he had no illusions of imagination. It required caution, and he was not rash. It required determination, and when he had made up his mind, nothing deterred him from carrying out his resolve. The elevation of a Sabine of humble birth to the Principate is a symptom of the leveling process which was gradually raising Italy to an equality with Rome. Hitherto no man who was not of high Roman descent was regarded as a possible candidate for the empire. In appearance, the homely Vespasian was very different from the aristocratic Augustus. He was square and firmly built his neck thick, his features coarse, his eyes small. As a soldier he was competent, but not brilliant. He had enjoyed a fair education, and could speak and write Greek with ease. He was careless of appearances, and was not ashamed of his humble origin. He laughed at the flattery of the poets who tried to discover a heroic origin for his municipal family. He had a sharp and homely wit, an anecdote is related of him that, having been criticized by Florus for pronouncing the word plaustrum, a wagon, in provincial fashion, plostrum, he addressed Florus on meeting him next day as O Flare. He was not perhaps naturally superstitious, but while he was at Alexandria, Oriental flatterers practiced on his credulity. A blind man and a cripple alleged that the god Serapis had assured them that the new imperator possessed the divine power of healing their infirmities. Vespasian was persuaded to touch the eyes of the blind with his spittle and to place his foot on the lame man. Immediately the blind received his sight, and the lame walked. Vespasian was deceived by the imposture, and was filled with a deep respect for the oracles of Serapis. He married Flavia Domitila, and by her had three children. Titus, Domitian, and Domitilla. After her death he did not marry again, but formed a permanent connection known as Contubernium, with a freedwoman named Sanus, with whom he had been intimate before his marriage. 
Vespasian did not arrive in Rome until the summer of 70 A.D. Before he returned, the Senate had taken in hand the restoration of the capital, for while the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus lay in ruins, it was believed that the empire could not be prosperous. The work was entrusted to L. Vestinus, a knight of high reputation, although such works usually devolved upon senators. The ruins of the old temple were removed, by the orders of the Herospices, so that the new edifice might be erected on the foundations of the old. For the gods do not wish the old form to be changed. On the 21st June, being a fair day, soldiers whose names were auspicious, such as Valerius or Salvius, entered the arena, crowned with garlands and the vestal virgins along with boys and girls, both of whose parents were alive, sprinkled the site with the water of springs and running streams. The praetor, Helvidius Priscus, then purified it by the blood of a boar, a weather, and a bull, and having placed the entrails on an altar of turf, repeated after the pontifex a prayer to Jupiter, Juno, Minerva, and the patron gods of Rome, to prosper the undertaking, and by divine help raise the temple." then he touched the fillets which bound the foundation stone and it was dragged to the spot where it was destined to lie by the combined efforts of priests senators knights and the people heaps of gold and silver coins never used for profane purposes and nuggets of unwrought metal were then cast on the foundations the new temple was built on the plan of the old one but the haruspices permitted vespasian to raise it to a greater height than the temple restored by catullus this striking ceremony and the rebuilding of the capital were a fitting inauguration of the era introduced by the accession of Vespasian, an era of peace and tranquillity. The temple of Janus was closed in the following year, 71 AD, after the return of Titus from the conquest of Judea, and the peace which Vespasian bestowed upon the world was, like the Pax Augusta, appreciated by his contemporaries, celebrated by poets, and impressed on coins. Vespasian followed the example of Augustus, and the more recent example of Galba, in taking to himself a consort in the empire. Both the proconsular imperium and the tribunician power were conferred on his son Titus at the same time, and thus Titus held a position like that which Tiberius held in the last years of Augustus. The object of Vespasian was not to lighten his own labors, but to secure the succession for his son. Titus was allowed to assume more of the imperial privileges than had been conceded to any consort before. He wore the laurel wreath, and vota were offered in his name. He also styled himself imperator, but while Vespasian used this title as a praenomen, Titus bore it as a cognomen, Titus Caesar Imperator Vespasianus. The position of Titus was also rendered unique in another way. The dangers which threatened the principate from the power which was in the hands of the praetorian prefect had been clearly shown in the course of recent history. The appointment of two prefects was one solution of the difficulty, but Vespasian found a more effective solution by entrusting it to his son and consort. Vespasian made no alteration in the constitution of the principate, but he attempted to introduce some innovations in practice. He seems to have laid less stress than his predecessors on the tribunitia potestis, and to have even intended to discontinue the official counting of the years of his reign as tribunician years. He seems to have contemplated a return to the first system of Augustus, 27 to 23 BC, which based the position of the princeps mainly on the consulate. He was ordinary consul himself in every year of his reign except two, 73 and 78 A.D., and his son and consort Titus was generally his colleague. But nothing came of this unusual series of imperial consulates. 
it was only tentative and did not affect the future development of the principate vespasian was respectful to the senate but he did not permit it such independence as it enjoyed under augustus tiberius claudius and in the early reign of nero by exercising an influence on its composition he tried to render it dependent on the emperor this influence he exercised in two ways by frequent consular elections which he was able to control he increased the number of the consulares and in seventy three a d he assumed the censorship along with titus and exercised the censorial power of adlection to the senate at the same time he created a number of patrician families to take the place of the old nobility which was exhausted a new aristocracy dates from this reign vespasian abolished chiefly in favor of italians and provincials trials for maestas but on the other hand he did not permit processes to be instituted against delators and this clemency displeased the aristocracy there was a party of opposition in his reign just as in the reigns of his predecessors consisting of stoic and cynic philosophers and discontented nobles full of vain and unpractical theories under nero their leader had been thracia under vespasian it was thracia's son-in-law helvetius priscus he was a man of no judgment infatuated with an idea of an impossible republic dreaming still of cato and brutus he had written a book entitled the praise of cato he was unable to distinguish between the tyranny of a nero and the good government of a vespasian he not only indulged in untimely opposition but took part in conspiracies and at length like thracia he died a martyr to a vain aspiration vespasian caused a decree for his banishment to be passed and then ordered his death the sects of the stoics and cynics were banished from the city and here popular opinion probably supported vespasian these philosophers kept up a constant agitation by their tracts against monarchy the stoic musonius rufus was honorably accepted from the decree of exile he knew that the monarchy was a necessity and he did not bark the only other execution of note besides that of priscus was that of cecina the general who betrayed vitellius he was put to death for implication in a conspiracy in seventy nine a d by the order of titus the most difficult and most ungrateful problem that vespasian was called upon to solve was the ordering of the finances of the state the treasuries were empty and a large outlay was urgently demanded both in the provinces and in italy the extravagance of nero's reign followed by a year of civil war had plunged the state in bankruptcy vespasian required means not only for the ordinary expenses of administration but for carrying out the work and repairs which had been neglected during the last years owing to want of funds he had to renew the fortifications of the rhine frontier which had been destroyed in the rebellion of the batavians and he had to help rome and italy to recover from the disasters of the recent wars he calculated that a sum of forty billion sesterces about three hundred and twenty million lira was required to raise the prostrate republic the census was held seventy three a d in order to set the revenue in order and adjust the taxation and this was one of the emperor's chief objects in assuming the censorship like all rulers to whom the task has fallen of rescuing a state from pecuniary embarrassment he was obliged to make the burdens severe and to practice strict economy and like all such rulers he got little thanks his fiscal strictness and policy of retrenching made him unpopular he was called avaricious and parsimonious he renewed imposts which had been remitted by galba and instituted new taxes he raised in some cases even doubled the tributes of the provinces 
he exercised strict control over the fiscal officers, who under a careless princeps were in the habit of diverting the public money into their private chests. Some pieces of public land in Italy, destined for the occupation of veterans, but still unassigned, had been unlawfully occupied, and Vespasian endeavored to resume these for the state. He retrenched the expenses of the court, and by his own frugal life set the example of moderation. The extravagant luxury which had prevailed at the courts of Claudius and Nero seems to have gone out of fashion. The great public buildings which he erected show that he succeeded in filling the treasury. The fire of Nero's reign, as well as the fire which attended the fall of Vitellius and ushered in the Flavians, had given opportunity for the erection of new buildings. Rome rose again from her ashes. Roma resurgens is one of the mottoes on coins of Vespasian. Besides the temple of Jupiter, already mentioned, Vespasian built a temple to Peace, the goddess whom he preeminently revered, in 75 A.D. This temple was connected with an open place which resembled the fora of Caesar and Augustus, but was not called a forum, not being used for forensic purposes. It lay behind the Basilica Aemilia and east of the Forum Augusti, from which it was separated by the Argelitum. Domitian afterwards connected the Forum Augusti with the Templum Passis by the Forum Transitorium. Pliny counted the Temple of Peace among the finest works in the world. Vespasian deposited in it the golden treasures which Titus brought back from the Temple of Jerusalem. On the southeast side of this place he erected a Templum Sacrae Orbis, which served for keeping the archives of the census. But the great work by which Vespasian will be remembered is the huge amphitheatre which he built in the hollow between the Esquiline and the Salian to take the place of the amphitheatre of Taurus in the campus, which had been burnt down in the great fire. This building, now popularly known as the Colosseum, rose almost as high as the capital itself and accommodated nearly ninety thousand spectators. One of the most important cares of Vespasian was the organization of the Praetorian Guard. The cohorts formed by Vitellius out of the Germanic legions had in any case to be broken up, but Vespasian had to decide whether he would accept the innovation of his predecessor and form the new guard out of his own victorious legions and adopt the increased number of sixteen cohorts instead of nine. Both political and financial considerations induced him to return to the system of Augustus. If he filled up the praetorian cohorts from certain legions and not from others, insolence on the one hand and jealousy on the other would be the necessary results, while the treasury could not afford to increase the number of highly paid troops. He therefore established again the old number of nine cohorts, and renewed the practice of recruiting them from Italians. In regard to the legionaries, he had to replace the Germanic troops who were dismissed in consequence of the part they played in the rebellion of Civilis by three new legions, second adjutrix four flavia felix sixteenth flavia firma from this time forth italians do not seem to have been recruited as legionaries this however was probably the natural result of their privilege and not due to any enactment excluding them in the provincial administration which was marked by the appointment of good governors several changes took place Ius Latinum was conferred upon all the peregrine town communities of Spain, and the new citizens were enrolled in the tribus Quirinia, 74 A.D. The same privilege was probably bestowed upon the Helvetians. Achaia, which Nero in his Philhellenic enthusiasm had declared free, was made tributary again and restored to the Senate, while Sardinia and Corsica were transferred back to the Emperor. The two Cilicias, rough and smooth, 
were united as a single province under an imperial governor, 73 through 74 A.D., and Lycia and Pamphylia were similarly united. The dependent kingdom of Commagene was incorporated in the province of Syria, 72 A.D., the governor of Syria, Cecinius Paetus, having accused King Antiochus of conspiring with Parthia. This change must have been an advantage for the inhabitants, who must have been more severely taxed to keep up a small sovereignty than as tributaries of Rome. The Parthian king tried ineffectually to procure the restoration of King Antiochus, and it is possible that these negotiations, as well as the refusal of Rome to help Parthia against the Alans, may have led to a breach between the two powers, which resulted in hostilities in 77 A.D., when M. Ulpius Trajanus was governor of Syria. Vologeses invaded the province, but was compelled to retire by Trajan, the future emperor, who received for his services the triumphal insignia, and was appointed proconsul of Asia two years later. The eastern frontier was now protected not only by the four legions of Syria, but by a legion in the newly organized province of Galatia and Cappadocia, which was entrusted to a legatus Augusti pro praetore. Vespasian's measures for the protection of the Danube frontier and the wars of his lieutenant in Britain will be more conveniently told in subsequent chapters. Vespasian died on June 23, 79 A.D., at the age of seventy. During his last illness he carried on his public business as usual, and said that an imperator ought to die standing. He was consecrated by a decree of the Senate, like Claudius and Augustus. Section 2. Titus. Titus, already imperator, already endowed with a tribunician power, was elected princeps, and Augustus without a demurring voice. Born in the first year of Claudius, he had been educated along with Britannicus. He accompanied his father to Judea, and had been sent to announce to Galba the adhesion of the eastern army. He was well educated, eloquent and accomplished, and of great personal beauty. His conquest of Jerusalem established his military reputation. He was fond of pleasure and dissipation. While he was in the east, he became the lover of Berenice, sister of Agrippa, and during his father's reign she lived with him at Rome as his mistress. But to the Romans, who might have tolerated a Greek concubine, this open connection of the consort of the emperor with a Jewess was a scandal, and Titus yielded to their prejudices, much against his will. Berenice returned to her country, but visited Rome once more after the death of Vespasian. Titus, however, was firm, and refused to sacrifice his influence to her seductions. He had been married twice, and by his second wife, Marcia Fernilla, had a daughter, Julia, on whom he conferred the title Augusta, after the example set by Nero in the case of Claudia. The great aim of Titus was to make himself popular. He was already the darling of the soldiers, and when he became princeps he courted favor with the aristocracy as well as with the populace. Thus his short reign bears in several respects the character of a reaction against his father's policy. He ingratiated himself with the Senate by punishing delators who were scourged in the amphitheater and deported to islands. He did not, like his father, exercise control over the public officials, and he allowed peculation to go on unchecked. He was lavish in giving away, and said that, No one ought to leave the presence of the princeps disappointed. 
An anecdote is told that one evening at supper he remembered that he had bestowed no gift on anyone during the day, and said to his friends, I have lost this day. He built magnificent baths, the Thermae of Titus, for the people, and on the occasion of the dedication of the great amphitheatre, 80 A.D., he exhibited shows which lasted for a hundred days. There were combats of gladiators in which women took part, and five thousand animals were slain. The arena was then filled with water, and a sea-fight took place representing the battle of the Corinthians and Corsarians, recorded by Thucydides. There was also a representation of the siege of Syracuse in the Naumatia of Augustus. At the end of the exhibitions, tickets for a distribution of eatables were thrown to the populace. By acts like these he wasted the funds accumulated by the economy of his father, just as Gaius had wasted the treasury of Tiberius. The reign of Titus was marked by public misfortunes at Rome and in Campania. A fire broke out in the city, 80 A.D., and consumed the new temple of Jupiter Capitolinus, not yet quite completed. It also injured the Pantheon and Thermae of Agrippa, the theatres of Pompeius and Balbus, and the portico of Octavia. In 79 A.D., August 23rd, 24th, the great eruption of Vesuvius took place, which overwhelmed the cities of Pompeii and Herculaneum. Owing to this disaster, a picture of the Greek civilization of Campania was safely preserved under the lava for the benefit of the present century. A description of the eruption has been preserved by an eyewitness, the younger Pliny, whose uncle, the elder Pliny, perished by approaching too nearly the volcanic eruption, which was also fatal to the lyric poet Cassius Basis. The health of Titus was seriously undermined before he became princeps, and no remedies availed to cure him. He died in his father's native district at Riate on September 13th, 81 A.D. His short term of power was not stained by a single execution of a senator, and the Romans regretted his death. But it is impossible to know what he might have turned out if he had lived longer. He began somewhat like Nero and Gaius, and it is possible that when he had exhausted the treasury he might have ended like Nero and Gaius too. He was popular, the darling of the world, but his popularity rested on a false foundation, and he bequeathed to his successor the invidious task of replenishing the fiscus which his extravagance had well-nigh emptied. The brevity of his reign was indeed fortunate for Titus, who, like his father, was enrolled among the gods. End of chapter 21, sections 1 and 2. Recording by Mark Penfold.